0: As the fourth and fifth graders are finding their way to continue worship, would you open up God's Word, uh, whether that be electronically or in the actual text? First Peter chapter five is where we're going to be at today. First Peter chapter five, and uh, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about humility. And um, when I say that word, what comes to your mind? When I say be humble, what does that look like for you? Bethany and I were having a conversation. We were sitting down talking earlier this week, and She said, you know what, Jordan, I always get nervous when I find out what you preach on before you preach on it, because I know how the week is going to (laughs) go. And um, so whenever we preach on marriage, it's usually pretty tense in our house. (laughs) Um, And whenever we we, uh, preach on um, raising up kids, our kids somehow start to act up a little bit more than they used to. And then when we talk about humility, this week was just uh, a lot. There was a lot that that, that came up uh, this week. And the Bible speaks about humility in a lot of places. But here in chapter five, Peter, the apostle Peter, the one who has seen the risen Jesus Christ after addressing the elders, is going to turn his attention to all of you. He's going to say in the text, uh, specifically younger men and women, all of you, the congregation, individual and corporate, to be Humble to be humble in your submission to the elders and the leadership of the church, but also to be in humility to one another as you make Jesus Christ known. So let's talk this morning as Peter addresses us how to be humble. Chapter five, first Peter, verse five. He says, likewise. Those of you who are younger, now notice in the ESV version of the Bible, he does not say younger men, your translation might have it, but he's addressing the entire congregation. Be subject to the elders, that's a summary of last week. If you missed that, communitygospelchurch.com slash messages, and you'll see what he's talking about there. Be subject to the elders, clothe yourselves, all of you, with, say it, humility. Say humility. Humility. All right, say with humility towards one another. Say, oh boy. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace, grace, God's grace, to the humble. Six, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Seven, cast all of your anxieties on Him. What does that look like? Because He cares for you. Eight, be sober minded, watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, the Old Testament calls him, he prowls around like a roaring lion. He seeks someone to devour. But you, church, you are to resist him. You're to stand firm in your faith. And you're to know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the entire world. It's the Word of God. Lord Jesus. Uh, speak very clearly today in ways that I can't. And may your truth be proclaimed here in this place, that we have the opportunity to repent of ourselves and submit to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We take a moment to bow humbly, to learn and to yield to your word so that we can live out this truth in our everyday life. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Put on humility. How do we do that? All right. Number one, let's talk about it. Put on, he says, humility. First Peter, chapter five, verse nine, after giving the summary of paying attention to the elders, to the leaders of the church, he says you are to put on humility as you are submissive to his authority. Now, what do we do? We clothe ourselves. And so the question on the table is, what does it look like to put on humility? Does that come When you buy a Bible, is it in the back of your Bible? Do you get to put it on like an apron? Interesting, right? Some translations say clothe yourselves or put on the apron of humility. The Greek for put on, and Greek is something that we unpack because the New Testament was written in Greek, Old Testament written in Hebrew. And so we go through those words so that we understand this text better. The Greek put on comes from a noun which is an apron that was used of a slave that was fastened to his undergarments so that they could serve their masters better. So Peter's already addressed this. If you go back in the text in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, if you are employed by somebody, it is the apron in which you wear to do your service to your master. So police officers, you wear a uniform. You put it on to go to work. Doctors put on scrubs. Some of us put on different aprons and here we get a good idea of the fact that humility is a disposition of valuing or asserting oneself appropriately before God, but also before others. So ready? Humility is not thinking too highly of yourselves, but humility is not thinking too lowly of yourself. So there's a lot of times where people will put on humility falsely because they'll look in the mirror and they'll say, "Well, oh, I'm so great. Look at this. God has created and constructed this. My mom tunes in sometimes to hear messages from community gospel and I'm reminded mom of dad when he used to get ready and he would say, Denise, don't I look so great today? And I could hear my mom say, it's false humility, right? But it's not thinking too lowly of yourself either. It is just having the right vein in light of who we are, and what we're capable of doing. We know that we're sinners. Romans three twenty three. For all have fallen short of the glory of God. But because of the fact that God came and He died and He rose again, John chapter 3, verse 17, Jesus came as a salvation, not a condemnation. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you'll be saved. And so even though I am a sinner, I am saved of my sin and I am entered and ushered into the family of God and he bestows gifts on me and he says, you are my hands and feet. And so I think, wow, God thinks highly of me. And so I operate in that giftedness. Now, Peter, if he were here today in physical form, he would say, let me give you a great illustration of what it looks like to put on humility. One time we were sitting and we were having dinner with Jesus. We didn't know that he was going to die yet, but he told us that he was going to die. And before we had the meal or after we had the meal, some people speculate to this. Jesus got up from the table and he took a towel. And what did he do? He tied it around his waist. He put on humility. Peter would look at us and he would say that Jesus gives us the ultimate example of humility by putting it on and washing the disciples' feet. John chapter 13, it says, For I have given you, this is Jesus speaking, because the words are in red. Just kidding, that's a Bible joke. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So to put on or clothe yourself with humility. That means we put on our servant aprons and we go to work in the giftedness that God has us to do. What is the giftedness that God has us to do? Number one, you're to share your faith, Matthew 28, with the world who needs a Savior. Open your mouth. Christ came, Christ died, Christ rose again. If you confess with your mouth that you're a sinner and believe in your heart, Jesus Christ is Lord, the Bible says you will be, key word, saved. Now that you know what to do, go do it. Okay? Okay. And then edification comes into building up the church. So we put our needs and desires ahead of our own. This just happened and transpired in my house the other day. My kids, God bless their heart, um, they try sometimes to just do the minimum that is required. Your kids ever do that? Man, I'll tell you what, like they do the minimum of what is required and they go do whatever they want to do. And so I looked at my daughter. I'm not going to tell you which one, but most people who know us probably know which one I'm talking about. And I said, hey, this world is not a place where we participate in the minimum that we're required to do. We do the work is needed to be done for the benefit of the family. So it's not about you picking up your plate and putting it in the sink. How about you pick up the whole family's plate and put it in the sink? I'll never forget what she said. Dad, that's going above and beyond. <laughs> Pray for your pastor. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, church, I want you to do nothing from selfish ambition. What is the prayer for putting on humility? That you would do nothing out of what he's called vain conceit for yourself, for your own edification, for your own glory. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Peter says we put on humility by seeking the other person's best. That's a true definition of love. Jesus sought your best on the cross. Now, he says in putting on humility, you should be a little bit concerned and cautious, though, because there's a sin to avoid there what happens is when we put on humility and we start to seek other people's best, oh, now this sin comes in called pride or arrogance. Look at the second half of chapter 5, verse 5. Peter pulls from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, stating that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if I do something for the better of my brother or sister, and I want the praise and adoration and glory, I start to become prideful. I start to think more highly of myself. That same passage of Scripture is in James chapter 4, verse 6. Pride is the technical word arrogance. It's mentioned 200 times in the NIV version of the Bible. It is a behavior and an attitude that is detested by God. He hates the proud. Arrogance is nothing more than an overt display of one's self-importance above all. It is a person that says, it's about me and my needs. I'm more concerned about my plate than I am about the family plates. And so here, what we see here is it also parallels Proverbs chapter 16. Everyone who is arrogant in the heart is an abomination to the Lord. God hates a proud look, Proverbs chapter 6. And in this, he gives two promises in regards to our pride. He says, first of all, if you are a prideful person, you have to get rid of it as fast as you possibly can by putting on the apron of humility and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. The way that you get rid of pride is you get your hands and feet busy doing for others what you would have them do for you. Because if you don't, the Bible tells us that arrogance will be punished. And ultimately, those people, the prideful people, are against God, his word and his ways. And there's a place for those people and it's called hell. But he says, second promise, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are Jesus words from Matthew chapter five. For them, they will always find God's grace in being humbly submissive. So when we are seeking the other person's best definition of love, we find God's blessedness being bestowed upon us. He looks at us and says, yes, this is good. This is what I want you to do. St. Francis of um, which is a very old dead person who I studied a lot in college, um, says where there is patience and humility... There is neither anger nor vexation. God continually opposes proud people. Those who think they don't need to listen to him or his leadership, which is the church in context of Peter. However, God gives grace to the humble who put on humility. So the first act of humility before you can be humble to other people is that you have to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. The first step for us to put on the apron of humility is to do what Christ did for us. And that is submit to the fact that his blood that was shed on the cross was for me and accept the free gift of salvation. The gospel is not being preached. Good works is. We're seeing people who are putting themselves in ethical camps and saying, I'm a good person. Nobody is good. The Bible says not even one. If people were good, then Christ didn't have to die. But Christ did die, and we have to put on humility by, by submitting ourselves to God through faith in Christ. Have you done that? If you haven't, blue bookmark in your pew, pick that up, read through it, walk through it, accept it. Number two, though, because most of us have done that, okay, is put on humility by serving in a Christ-like way with a servant heart. Now, here's where this kind of gets a little bit uh, to be like sandpaper if you are angry, if you are annoyed, 2020 in a nutshell, if you are frustrated, if you are worried, then that may mean that you have not submitted humbly to Christ in serving other people. The people who serve other people who are so consciously aware of the needs of others have no time to be prideful. When emotions like anger and annoyance and frustration and worry comes up, that is a sign that we have not put on the apron of humility. Or, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we've taken it off and said, God, my ways are better than your ways. Look at verse 6. He says, So humble yourselves, that's a summary of the previous passage, therefore, that's why he says therefore, what's it, therefore? Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, and cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the second trait of how we become humble, first is that we put it on, but secondly is we come under God's mighty hand. I do not know if God had hands, right? Peter says, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Next move is an act of your will. Because, see, we can submit to Christ, And we can say, yes, I trust you, but God says, no, I want you to take that trust a step further and actually live it out in action. You came into this building this morning. These pews have been here since Jesus walked the earth. And you believe that they would hold you up. You trusted in that. You walked through those doors and you said, yep, those pews will hold me up. But you acted on your faith by sitting in the pew. That's the action. This is what Peter is saying here. Humble yourself under God's hand. Well, how do we... Humble ourselves under God's hand. Good question. Number one, we accept that He, in His sovereignty, His rule, that He owns the earth, that He created the earth, and He is in control of the earth. We accept His hand of protection. God's mighty hand is used in the Old Testament. It describes His power. In Exodus chapter 3, it talks about how God, with His mighty hand, move the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt. The Bible declares, though, that God is spirit. So does he have hands? He doesn't, in essence, have a physical form, but in Christ, he took on form. But we're talking about God the Father here. Now, you word. don't worry about spelling this if you take notes. Hand is what we call an anthropomorphism. Ooh, big word, right? That cost me $10,000 in seminary, okay? Pass that plate one more time. Um, anthros means man. Morph means form. So, like for example, if I would explain this to my kids, I talk about like superheroes—they morph into their um, state. Okay. So anthropomorphisms help describe God in some way that we could understand Him. It assigns Him human characteristics. So that we can, on some level, comprehend that which is uncomprehendable. That way we can fathom that which is unfathomable. God's hand is like a loving father who guides his children, even though he may not be present. It is as if his teaching and what he has instructed them guides them. So. My kids, when they go to school, I would pray and hope that our hand as parents is still guiding them through the hallways, even though we're not there. That's what Peter is saying. He says, God's hand is guiding us. You have to take that hand, though. You have to submit yourself. That's humility. That I would submit myself under God's hand of protection. That I would realize that he is in control. Believers humble themselves. By coming under God's hand, accepting that he will protect us in his time and in his ways. You might be here at Community Gospel Church and you think to yourself, well, I can recall the time where God didn't protect me. That's about you. That's false humility. God might have looked at you and said, in my time and in my ways, I will protect and provide for you and what I have for you. Uh, we were talking about this in the nine o'clock hour. Mark Lowry, who's a famous Christian comedian, he's also a phenomenal singer. He says, when we get to heaven, God's going to essentially take our hand and he's going to walk us through our life. And he's going to look at us and he's going to say, hey, here's where I protected you and you didn't even know it. He's going to say, hey, here's where I protected you. He's going to take my hand and we're going to have an eternity to talk about all the times that he protected me and you. And that's exactly what Peter's saying is he's saying when we come under the hand of God, when we take his hand, he exalts. You could circle that word there. Which means he is able, in his time, in his provision, to reverse past misfortunes. In pectoral context, and all that means is in the context of the letter of Peter, he's saying that, yes, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Yes, you're going to have problems. Yes, you're going to experience pain. But understand that God can reverse that if you exalt him. He can triumph over oppressors. He has the ability to do so. But it has to be in his time. And so we are participants in his glory at the proper time or in due time. And in context, he's talking about the last days when the chief shepherd appears. So it may not happen on this earth, but if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it will happen in eternity where there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more pain. Every tear will cease. So in Peter's context, he's saying the reason we often don't see God's hand is, we, is because we haven't accepted his hand. It is as if, if if it were raining and it rained last night and you were to go outside and somebody had an umbrella and you trusted that an umbrella would keep you dry. But yet in ignorance, you walked beside it, you had it in your hand, you put it up. But what you did was you said, yep, this umbrella, it is something that we can stand under in order to be dry. And you did this and you continued to get soaked. That's what God says. We're walking hand in hand, but you haven't put me over you. He says, you have to put me over you. Well, how do we do that? Well, look at the second thing he says. Part of this is you cast your anxieties into his hand. Casting means to put on or to place or to move. Believers who carry worry, anxiety, stress, or daily struggles show that they haven't fully trusted God. If you carry worry anxiety stress or daily struggles you have not fully trusted god this past week it's been one situation after another after another after another and i look at bethany i'm like oh my goodness it could stop raining anytime. any time you ever been there and what i realized was in that moment i have to come underneath god's hand and enjoy the rain in trials and tribulations consider it pure joy the bible says Peter commands to turn everything, throw your anxieties over to God, knowing that he trusts and he cares for you and that he is working. Now, the crazy thing is here, God offering us his hand is saying, here, you could come to me, right? You could come to me, accept my hand, put me over you, right? But here's the crazy thing about coming to a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, if you come to me, if you accept me, give me your hand, if you accept me, okay, I'm also going to take the backpack too. To cast your anxieties on him is to trust that, okay, we're going to do this together. But at the same time, he's saying, I'll take the backpack too. And so you eliminate the backpack and you give it over to him and you say, here's everything that I have, everything that I'm experiencing, pain, hardship, friendships, relationships, all of those things. And he says in Matthew chapter 11, if you are worried or if you are burdened, I will give you, anybody know the word? Rest. Now, rest is peace. Okay, so now I have another question. How do I enter into God's rest? What does it even look like to enter into God's rest? Well, number one, it means that God has total inability right now. It means that I put my faith in him and him alone through a relationship with Jesus Christ. I know what the umbrella can do. I put it over me. I trust in him. I put my faith in him. But number two, having total faith in Christ's sacrifice means I live in complete, humble obedience to him and his word and his will and his ways. I lean into trial and temptations. I lean into pain. I lean into problems. I don't avoid them. I don't go around them. I don't go over them. I don't go under them. I go through them. In every situation and circumstance, I welcome them. I say, here we go. We're going to do this. This is what this looks like. I don't avoid. I lean and I say, God, you're going to go through this with me. And I pray for rest by faith in you that I will be able to see that in obedience. Corey Tenboom, who many of you probably don't know, helped uh, Jews in World War II Holocaust, uh, hiding them in, in the home, said this, and I think this is so important. Said, worry doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And so we're probably sitting here and we're wondering, well, what does that look like? How do I do that? Well, here's the prayer, okay? And we're going to pray this together. And if you mean it in your heart, I pray that it comes out Heavenly Father, you know what problems I face today. You know where I will meet discouragement, distress, anxiety, stress troubles, tribulation. You know where I may feel too weak to go on, to want to give up, to cave. You know that most of my anxiety is over worldly pursuits that won't matter where I am with you in eternity. So today, and this is the prayer, today I trust you each hour, each second, each minute, each moment for the strength that I need, for the wisdom that I need, and love that I need to make this day worthwhile. And in all of the busyness of today, let me know that you are my joy, you are my strength. That's how you find rest. You push over to God in prayer. As Peter's already outlined that in context, those who do these things will be able to pray. Those who do these things will be able to Rest. Now, there's an enemy that creeps up. Okay, So we clothe ourselves with humility by putting it on. We humble ourselves underneath God's hand. And in those actions, he says, I want you to be sober-minded, not full of the world. I want you to be watchful. I want you to resist the devil. He outlines the fact that we have a common enemy. All right, We have a common enemy. And he looks at us and he says, pay attention or wake up. What? Number one, end times. Christ is coming back soon. All right? God has two hands. One hand is welcoming people into a relationship with Him. He's saying, Here, come into the family of God. I've died on the cross for your sins. And if you confess and believe, then you can come into my family. His other hand is withholding His wrath. And at some moment, which we don't know when, soon, both hands will drop. And you will not have the ability to come into the family of God anymore and his wrath will be poured out and the day will come. It will come. It will happen. So first thing in context is pay attention to the end times. First Peter chapter four, verse seven, the end of all things is near. Be clear minded, self controlled so that you can pray. Two, also pay attention or wake up to the fact that there's this devil. Now, both words, sober-minded and watchful, refer to how we are to be disciplined and steadfast to further our rest. So the first thing is, we have to know our adversary, he is the devil. Dun, dun, dun. All right. Believers, in their persecution, let's go back to verse 8. Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. He seeks someone. Now, I would put you in there. I put my name. I put in my Bible. Your adversary, Jordan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour you. He wants you when you pursue Christ. Resist him, though. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the entire world. Believer's persecution comes from one source. His name in the Bible is Satan or the accuser or Beelzebub. And just like soldiers, Peter says that we as believers are to be alert that he is present. And Peter stresses that the devil is the source of all evil in the world. The world is a system or structure that is set up by Satan where he uses unsaved, unregenerated individuals who have not confessed and believed in the name of Jesus Christ to accomplish His will and purpose. That's transpiring now. God is fully aware of this. He understands that this is happening. He's, he's allowing it to manifest until the day where judgment comes. And while Satan has no power against God, he, want, he wants to harm God's people. If I can't get to the source, I'll go to something else. If I can't get to Dad, I'll go to the kids. Now, you have to understand Judaism here in this passage of scripture. In Judaism, opponents of God and his people are frequently pictured as lions. Psalm chapter 22, verse 13 says, They open wide their mouths at me like raving, roaring lions. Job, in the Old Testament, is where Satan is described as one who roams around going to and fro. Like the Potawatomi zoo, right? The lion. I'm a tiger fan, not a um, lion fan, by the way devour is literally swallow, referring to the activity of the devil and trying to destroy believers and their faith. The biggest thing that Satan wants you to do is to deny your faith in Christ. That's the one thing that he wants. He wants you in your day to look at it and say, God is not good, he's not sovereign, he's not just. If he can get you to do that, he wins. And so here, what we see is the biggest way to know your enemy, ready for this? Is to know the truth. The biggest way that, you know, a counterfeit is, you know, the truth. Bank tellers used to do this. I don't know if they still do, but they essentially to train tellers, they would show them hundred dollar bills, real ones over and over and over and over again, just constantly all day long. You study real hundred dollar bills over and over and over and over and over again so that when something came up that was counterfeit, they would be like, oh, there's an error. See, what happens in the life of the believer is so oftentimes we're like, we should study Satan. We should study the enemy. Uh, false. Okay, This isn't a football game. It's not a hockey game. It's not a basketball game. All right, This is life. We study what is real. We study the source as much as we possibly can so that when something is counterfeit comes up, we go, ah Fallacy. If you want to know the devil, you have to know the truth. If you want to resist the devil, you need to know the truth. And so he says, I want you to know the adversary by knowing the truth. And number two, be able to resist him. And the best way to resist Satan is to stand firm in your faith. Do what it says. Do what it says. We used to, uh, I think this was last year with the kids ministry. We, their, their theme was do what it says. Do not merely deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So this means that Peter is saying you stand firm in the faith. Faith is literally the trust in the gospel. The words in the Greek text in the in the Greek text faith is literally trust in the gospel that Christ came, died and rose again. And you must despite all persecutions not waver in your living hope. Jesus Christ chapter 1 and 2 in 1st Peter. And we know that Christ in the end will vindicate our enemies. Now, the last part of that text should be extremely encouraging to you because it's extremely encouraging to me. When he says there's believers who are all over the place who are struggling with these things, you would think to ourselves, man, that stinks, right? But when we come into the family of God, it's like being adopted in this massive family. And when the family has hardships, essentially, we realize that, okay, we're going to go through this together. Mission scholars say that more believers have died for their faith in the last 50 years. Than in the previous two millennia. Two thirds of believers live in countries where governments are repressive to the gospel and biblical truth. So just because we don't feel persecution all the time doesn't mean that it's not happening. When we hear those words, our hearts should be cut to the core of the fact that the big family is struggling. And we should trust, as 1 John chapter 4 says, that the one who is greater in us is greater than the one who is in the world. He says, you need to have trust and faith that he who is greater than the one who is in the world. We trust in Christ who has already defeated Satan and will ultimately destroy him. So on an application level, what that means is you and I have to get to the point where sometimes when we're facing hardship and persecution, we say, Satan, I refuse to believe your lies and I will stand firm to the, for the truth of scripture. And sometimes you have to say it verbally. There's been multiple times in my life where I've yelled at the devil to his face because I know that he's standing right in front of me. And I say, I will not bow the knee to you because I've already bowed the knee to our Savior. So may you, as we prepare our hearts to sing and we prepare our hearts to reflect on this truth that we have been given to us today, may you put on, first and foremost, humility by, if you haven't yet, trusting jesus christ may you trust in god through faith in christ that is your first step to being humble number two may you accept god's hand of help if you are a believer in jesus christ stop resisting and start putting your hand out give him the burdens of the world that you carry take the backpack off and give it over to him as we sing to close this morning we're going to sing a couple of songs I want you to figuratively take off the backpack in the act of worship to remove the backpack, the anxiety, the frustrations, the feelings that you have there of this world. Give it over to him in worship. That's why we have song. That's why Jesus says, open your mouth as we're singing. Maybe you need to stop and maybe you need to just pray while we sing. That God would be honored above all things that you would eliminate worldliness and become sober-minded and watchful. And may you resist the devil and his schemes and the lies that he says. I would pray as we worship this morning that God would give you the eyes to see the lies of the devil based off the study that you're doing in his word. I would ask that you would pray this morning that God would give you his eyes, his hands, his feet, his heart, that you can resist the devil's schemes. Let me pray for you. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, this is your truth. It's your word. And I praise you that your truth is proclaimed here at Community Gospel Church. I thank you that it's not my words or my opinions. But it's yours. I praise you that every word of God proves true. And I praise you that it can be implemented in every area of life. Something so ancient to us is oh so relevant. It's real. And we cannot stand here or sit here in your church and deceive ourselves. For that would be a lie of the enemy. We have to understand that the truth must be applied. That we must live it out. We must implement it accordingly. We must take it to the communities that are entrusted to our care, to the homes that we have. Whether we find ourselves with a spouse or not, to the workplace, to all places, we must put on humility. And so, God, my prayer is the same prayer that I prayed this past week, that you would help us to become me, become like Jesus. Put the towel around my waist our waste, wash people's feet, be models of love wherever we find a neighbor who has a need in which we are able to meet we would rush to meet that need. That we would in an act of true love seek the other person's best because you have sought our best. God, I pray very specifically that you would help us to take your hand and to give the backpack over to trust that you are sovereign over all things. And help us to be humble in coming underneath that umbrella that we so desperately need. Help us not to push our way and our will on you. But that we be patiently steadfast for the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we worship today, God, through song. As we worship through hearing the word. through worship through prayer even now. I pray that you would send your angels to surround this place. I pray that you would send angels to the homes of the people in this place. I pray that you would protect us and fight battles for us that we don't need to fight. I pray that you would keep the devil away. I pray that you would put the lion to sleep. And I pray that you would help us to trust. To trust in your truth and to know the word of God backward and forward. Create in our hearts a desire and a passion to read your word. For those who reading is taxing, change that heart. Give them the desire. Give us the desire to realize that you wrote us a letter that we need in our lives. And we look for and we long for the day in which you will come to call us home. We love you, Lord Jesus. We love you so, so much for the sacrifice on the cross and the gift of the Holy Spirit. He teaches, instructs, guides, disciplines, encourages, and spurs us on to be more like you so that we can have peace and joy, not just here on earth, but in eternity as well. Thank you for your word this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church Podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, Simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.